Welcome everybody to this edition of Let's Talk About Training. We've got a number of questions to go through. I'm going to start with the first one, and the first question comes from Anthony. And Anthony says, hi coaches, here is my question regarding deadlifting, hypertrophy and bicep health. Yes, that, that alone raises questions, doesn't it, Anthony? I'm looking forward to this one. For a natural bodybuilder looking to gain as much hypertrophy value from the deadlift, who has already has considerable arm development in the bicep, is there any value in using a mixed grip to increase gripping ability and therefore loading potential in the deadlift? Well, there's more than one question here. Uh, and I'll read the whole question. We'll have to come back through it bit by bit. He goes on to ask, what are some other options and considerations to improve loading in a deadlift for those struggling with grip strength in a conventional overhand grip? So I'm going to break this one down. So he starts out by asking my question regarding deadlifting, hypertrophy, and bicep health. I'm going to start off by making the following comment. It's almost rare to hear um, people talking about deadlifting and hypertrophy these days so Anthony to your credit you're still talking um, like that which is very appropriate when we're mixing bicep health and deadlifting that's where I do get concerned because the uh, anyone with shortened biceps is going to find out at some point in time uh, in the deadlift if they're going heavy so that is probably not the question though let us go to the first question that First part of the question, Anthony said, for a natural bodybuilder looking to gain as much hypertrophy value from the deadlift, who already has considerable arm development in the biceps. Well, I'm going to go back, Anthony. For a natural bodybuilder looking to gain as much hypertrophy value from the deadlift. Now, Anthony doesn't specify where he wants to get his hypertrophy value from. which is something I want to come back and talk about, but I'll, I'll probably open the floor to the coaches first. Um, so looking again, as much hypertrophy value from the deadlift. Already, already got um, considerable arm development in the biceps. Is there any value in using a mixed grip to increase gripping ability and therefore loading potential? Is there any value in using a mixed grip to increase gripping ability and therefore loading potential in the deadlift? Okay, so coaches, who's going to go first on that one? Okay, so John's on. So it sounds like to me, if this person's into hypertrophy, um, they're also into shape and symmetry as well, if that's the goal, if I understand correctly. So anytime you use, like... John has just self-muted himself. John, you said anytime. Yeah, I did self-mute. Okay, so anytime you use an over under grip you do run the risk of causing an imbalance in you know your body you know especially your upper back um some things that you can do to fix that is i mean if you just keep that deadlifting and keep consistent with your rowing movements will develop some pretty good grip strength um also if you are properly stretching your, your wrists um, before your training and you know even when you do like a dedicated upper body session on your days off or whenever you fit it in um, that would help and the other thing you can do is uh, use a hook grip 
if you ever have experimented with that. If you do so, I would start off light because it can be pretty hard on your hands at first, but it gets better. Um, the other thing you can do is uh, use straps, but I would exhaust the avenue of seeing how strong you can get uh, without that first and then just apply any of those techniques on a needs basis. Thank you. So John's raised a few great points there. First of all, when, when, you revert, when you use what's called a mixed grip, one hand forward, one hand backwards, you do increase the potential for uh, imbalance throughout the body. Now, it's not, it's not insurmountable. There are a number of ways you can deal with that. And you don't get the same degree of, say, rotation that a golfer would get from it, etc. So the aim of, of, of a mixed grip, one forward, one back, is to reduce the point at which the bar slips out of the hand or to raise the loading limit at which the bar slips out of the hand and, and that's where I think Anthony's going with it allow me to lift heavier uh, and therefore should I be using it now where Anthony's really uh, not confused the question or complicated the question is, is he's, he's thrown in the point that he's got maybe large biceps maybe shortened biceps already so as far as the risk of tearing your bicep, is the risk of tearing your bicep greater in a conventional overhand grip or is the risk of tearing your bicep greater in a mixed grip? That's a good question for the coaches. You want to have a go at that one? I would say with a mixed grip, because one of them's underhanded. Absolutely. And is he talking about... Um is he talking about uh, having just shortened biceps from an imbalance program, or is he talking about actually doing biceps on the same day as deadlifting and doing a deadlift with a bicep pump would be my question. Well, I, I guess Anthony's only said he's got well-developed biceps from previous bicep-focused training. He, he hasn't acknowledged necessarily that he's got shortened biceps. I haven't seen too many people with, with hypertrophy in the bicep that haven't shortened them. I mean, it can be done, but it's rarely done. Um, Greg, you were going to make a comment? Um, yeah, I would say you're probably at a higher risk of tearing your bicep with a big script, um, seeing as you can lift heavier that way. And then I was also going to say, besides using straps, um, depending on what rest period he's using for hypertrophy and his deadlifts, um, he could probably take a little bit longer uh, uh, rest when he's using his deadlifts for hypertrophy. And I think still get the same effect, but maybe and his grip would recover better. To make some points there, and also with John's earlier point about stretching the forearms, and probably the most neglected muscle group in a deadlift, as far as preparing and countering the the downsides, is the stretching of the forearms because there's a lot of um, work being done by the forearms. In fact, in all strength training, in particular, pulling movements. Mike, something to add? Um, just to help Anthony a little bit, and so I don't know if the questions from him or for a client of his, but um, backing up a little bit is what, are the, what, is the short, what is the shortened bicep coming from or where is it coming from? Um, has he deadlifted in the past or what's his history with it and what grip has he typically used? So is there is there an existing imbalance in terms of shortness already existing? So, the, yeah. This bicep shortening, is that coming from unilateral work or bilateral work? So knowing, knowing Anthony, um, 
He's talking about himself, I believe, and he's simply acknowledging that he's got pre-developed biceps. Now, he, again, he hasn't said he's got shortened biceps. He's just got, he, he said, and I'll read the words again, um, considerable arm development in the biceps already. Um, so, you know, whether or not he was expecting some uh, hypertrophy in the biceps from it, I'm not sure. That was an inference more than a, more than a statement. Um, and he does go on with his second sentence, okay. So, so Mike, the only thing I can't answer for sure is that it is about himself, not about his client, in my opinion. Okay. And then, um, I guess, having the, having the information of how much, what history he has with the deadlift um, can also help you look at uh, potential impact of, of loading versus volume to cause hypertrophy. Because certainly, if you're not accustomed to you're accustomed to a certain way of deadlifting, but you need an exposure to a variation of deadlifting. Um, it's going to decrease your loading potential because you're using a, a different training technique. Um, sorry, I've lost my track there, Ian. You're right. I, I think, I think, Mike, the... The thing that would be worth uh, touching upon for myself at least now is that is the assumption or the inference that there's a direct correlation between load and hypertrophy. Now, if no other variable changed, in other words, nothing, nothing technical about the debt have changed, I would say absolutely the heavier lift, the more potential hypertrophy you're going to get. Now, even that is a little bit flawed in that hypertrophy response, which, uh, and this is a theory I developed many years ago, is... The loading and the reps, the point at which loading and reps affect someone in the hypertrophy potential is influenced by their training age. So um, if, if an inexperienced person went heavier and did less reps, it may, that may not be optimal for the hypertrophy. So the optimal hypertrophy rep range is influenced by training age. And I theorised many years ago that the more advanced you became in your training, the lower the average reps that you needed to optimise hypertrophy. So we just have to be very careful about the the inference or the assumption that more loading means more hypertrophy. And if you get out of your optimal hypertrophy bracket relative to your training age, and if this is done due to loading, then it's not necessarily a one-to-one or, or fully correlated relationship. But there's a second point about hypertrophy I want to touch upon. So even if someone was an advanced lifter who let's say their optimal hypertrophy bracket was say between three and six reps obviously quite advanced being able to go heavier doesn't guarantee increased hypertrophy in, in all muscle groups or or even a targeted muscle group if the technique changes so the point i was going on before uh, i went back to talk about the optimal hypertrophy rep bracket relative to the training age the point i was making was that if the technique is changing as the load comes up, the hypertrophy effect on, on the muscle group is changing. So let's say they had stricter technique initially and we could say, okay, we're getting a greater loading in the leg. Now, once someone's technique breaks down a deadlift, one of the first things we see is what's called hip kick. So they're extending at the knee but flexing at the hip. So the hip's rising faster than the shoulder. This decreases the loading on the legs and increases the loading on the lower back. So if you were saying I was doing this for hypertrophy in my legs and I wanted to lift heavier and I lifted beyond my technical limit, 
then you'd be actually missing optimal hypertrophy loading in the lower leg, or sorry, in the legs, in the lower body. Now, the second technical breakdown you're going to see typically in a deadlift is rounding of the spine. And if you round the spine, you're reducing the loading in the lower back and increasing the loading distribution through the intervertebral muscles. So the assumption that the heavier you go, the greater the hypertrophy impact has to be qualified not only on optimal rep bracket relative to your training age, but also on which muscle group is actually being overloaded. Now, the, the beautiful thing is in, in saving all of this is that the lats, in their role of preventing the arms from being ripped from the body, are going to get a pretty good training load no matter what. Um, you know, we could talk about the impact on shape, uh, posture, and, and I introduced the concept that I've been talking about for a few years now, which is the shape in which you, you load is the shape in which you adopt. But there is some saving grace that the lats will always be getting weak, irrespective of your technical breakdown. So if I've raised any points, um, or, if, or if any of the points I've raised have triggered a point, a comment from any of the coaches, put, put your hand up, so to speak. Otherwise, we'll go on to um, the second half of Anthony's question. It says, what are some other options and considerations to improve loading in a deadlift for those struggling with grip strength in the conventional overhand grip? So he, he's been more clear with this. He's just saying, what are the options for increasing loading if I'm struggling with my overhead conventional grip? So in order, I think John's raised hook grip. We've raised straps. Uh, and, and sometimes the question is worth asking, is overhand grip with a strap more appropriate for me than a reverse grip uh, without a strap? You know, that's a discussion in itself. But that's the order. So overhand grip, overhand hook grip, overhand grip with straps, and then reverse grip in that order. But before we complete on Anthony's um, question, I just want to stress that loading is uh, glorified and loading is certainly a very valuable variable, but loading is not the only variable. So there's only some points in, in anyone's lifting career or year that they should be compromising technique for load, uh, a relatively small window. And most of the hypertrophy could potentially come from focusing on and, and sticking to a certain technical model, uh, in which case limit the limiting factor of the grip strength may not be the limiting factor. The load may be uh, limited by the strength in a certain technical shape. So it shouldn't always be about grip strength, but understand there are time and a place for everything. So that's... Anthony's question, and certainly a great one to talk about because uh, the deadlift and, and, and when it comes to deadlift and the developed biceps, it's pretty much a risk uh, factor. And I say sometimes get the get the waste paper bucket put out in front of them so you can catch the bicep as it pops off. No, I'm only joking. Um, a gruesome thought, and we'll move on from that. A bit of um, bad humour. So let us go to Tong. Tong, you had a question or a question from a client. Tong, your volume is very low, Tong. We can't hear you. Okay. Is that better? Do your best, Tong. Hello? Okay. Um, this question is from a friend, uh, Enrique. He wants to uh, get your thoughts on landmine training. Um, what, what are the 
what are the advantages of using a barbell that's attached to um, a vertical frame with load? So for, for a moment there, I thought he might have been talking about a new technique out of Afghanistan or, or Iraq. So now that I've got at least two people laughing in my bad humour, um, can you give me Rike's definition again of that interesting term? It's, he calls it landmine training, where there's a big barbell to a vertical plane just to... Uh, uh, and then you attach load to the end of the barbell. And I think that what what he's seen is that people use it for uh, shoulder press, standing, different so, variations of that exercise. Have is, you seen that before? Is, is this where the barbell is fixed on the ground? No, it's, it's, it's fixed on a frame, like um, a squat frame. Right, so it's on a squat frame. Put it on the ground, yes. Does anyone else want to have a go at explaining that? Well, with with the landmine, yeah, it's fixed on a vertical frame, but it's on the bottom. It it can also be on something that looks like a home plate on the ground. And uh, if you're doing a shoulder press movement with that, I mean, we've discussed this before, but it's not only a shoulder press. And... So there's a couple of, a couple factors you have to consider when you do that. Number one is that most people already have imbalance and pushing movements, both vertical and horizontal, but mostly horizontal. And what the landmine does, it turns it into basically an inclined chest press. And the other problem is if you do it single arm, um, usually it's just a cheap movement the whole time because they're using the whole body to complete the lift and also the uh, negative impact on the uh, rotational force of the spine that's all so thanks Sean we've been through that I think in a, in a recent seminar and it should be on video footage somewhere so there is a lot of um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of hairs on that one there's a lot of risk factors in terms of the adaptations that occur so there's nothing that seems a right or wrong good or bad exercise but I would suggest that anyone doing that um a lot of that, without any awareness of what they're doing, may be developing some adaptations that I wouldn't endorse. How's that, Tom? That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Mike, did you have a comment on that? Um, just a personal experience I had with it where an athlete's gone off and um, at the college level, she's she competes in hockey. Um, her strength coach at, or preparation, physical preparation coach at, uh, at the college had her doing landmine work um so you've got all the angles that you discussed plus there's a rotational movement with it as well where you're going from left to right from your hip over the head down to the opposite hip um and the the poor girl's torn her she's torn the labrum in the shoulder and um it looks like she won't make the rest of the season um in regards to her in regards to hockey um so it's as you said it's you've got some movements and adaptations that probably wouldn't be recommended Yes, great summary, Mike. Great summary. Thank you, John, also on that one. Fantastic. So, I have another comment on that. Go ahead, John. The, the other question is, is, is he doing that move because he's exhausted every single avenue in his vertical or horizontal pressing training, or is he just doing it because it's popular at the moment? That's a silly question. 
I think he's noticed it's, it's a trend and he wants to see whether it's a healthy one or not. The, 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 actually, I just wrote about this on uh, in one of the units in, I think it's the new KSI Level O orientation course that I'm currently completing. And I suggest that there isn't a single exercise that people do that isn't driven by the fact that it's popular at the moment. Put it this way, I haven't met too many people who said, I've studied the iron game over the last 80 years, and as a result of my studies, I believe that the exercise that John C. Grimmick was doing in 1956 is probably the most appropriate one for me to do at this point in time. But I've met a lot of people who said, oh, this is definitely the best exercise, but you know, everyone else is doing it, of course, but I came to that independent conclusion that this is definitely the best exercise for me. Yeah, okay. So I appreciate those added comments. We'll go to Mike for our third question. Excellent. Um, can you hear me? Can do, Mike. Okay. Uh, so this is from a, from a client, and it was bordered on um, a discussion that we were having about length and tension in tissue and using external substances to raise your arousal levels in your training. Um, so is there, a, is there a point at which you, you would allow external, external use of, um, of arousal methods? Um, second would be with using, the, with use, using those methods, um, what durations of time would you use it for or would you use it full-time in training? Uh, and then three, is there a potential downside to using such methods for long periods of time and what would be the result? So that would be four. Okay, great question. So do we have, have an example of that external method or are we just going to make an assumption on generally speaking? Uh, what's really popular right now are a lot of the... Um, energy drinks that, um, that are more popular. It's young, younger athlete, more susceptible to what's tasting well and what's, um, what's trendy. So, so the, I guess the first part of the question, too, would be understanding the, the things that might influence length and tension in the body. So it's a great question because there's a lot of promotional exposure now to certain brands of energy drink. I was watching... Um, it was a Supercross last night in, I'm not sure whether it was in California or where the track was, and, and, the, and the winner in the third event for the night, um, I, I watched the, the reporter go straight to him at the end of the event, and his support team switched out his helmet and put on the sponsor's hat, switched out his goggles and gave him another pair of goggles and quickly put a certain brand of energy drink in his hand, and he took an obligatory sip at the start at the end of the interview. So especially in, in, in youth sports, if we call them, uh, youth adventure sports, or, there's a lot of exposure to, to certain popular brands of energy drinks. So using energy drink as an example, but um, we can apply it to any external stimulus as you described it. There's a time and place for everything, but the, 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 limit, the limitation or the how, how long that window of use should be will be determined by the, the, the stimulus. In the case of... Um, one of those energy drinks, for example, putting aside the sugar content for the moment and, and just focusing on the caffeine alone. So caffeine has been well-established as a, 
an elevator of arousal, both uh, short and long duration, and a number of mechanisms um, occurring mechanically. So it's got a pretty broad application to both power sport and endurance sport. The challenge in a chronic, uh, sorry, in a in a immediate sense, is that when you uh, are using something that's effective and increasing your work output, then you're going to have an increased recovery demand. And that's okay if it's like the championships or you know, a couple of times throughout the year. But if you were using something like that on a regular basis, and, and if it was effective, you would have to hope that you were using equally effective recovery methods because in theory you would be draining your, yourself more by your super maximal efforts. So as an example, and I don't want to dwell on this, but there's a, there is a certain sporting team in the Australian landscape at the Olympic level that became very popular for the wrong reasons for their use of um, um, some stimulants, uh, nothing to do with, with racing, uh, and use of uh, sleep, sleep aids. And you know, because one brought them up and the other helped them make sure they did get some sleep. Uh, so it's a little bit the same in that if you were using a, an effective drainer of energy, you'd hopefully you'd be replacing it. Now, from a more chronic perspective, the, the, re, the frequent use of caffeine does a number of things. In a uh, in pragmatic sense, it makes you desensitised to caffeine and you need more to get the same result. But from a pure physiological perspective, it interferes with your metabolism and therefore ultimately other systems of the body are going to be affected. Um, all systems of the body uh, potentially could be affected, for example, from adrenal fatigue onwards. Um, but it really does mess with the metabolism of the body long term. So there's a, a number of issues with caffeine, uh, and it has a degree of addictiveness that I would not be recommending someone be using on a regular basis, if that was their purpose. The other side that we can't neglect in this case is that which comes with the caffeine, which is the sugar. And I heard a very accurate description by a appropriately qualified person calling them uh, diabetes in a tin. So you've got some real risks associated with your frequent use of sugar. So... They're my concerns, Mike, and uh, I wouldn't be recommending it on a regular basis. If someone is has to use those things every training session, they've got a real problem with their lifestyle or their motivation. Usually, it's their it's their lifestyle; they're not recovered. Um, you know, if, if it's once a week, once a fortnight, as far as lifting for training, understandable. But you know, professionals, generally speaking, would not use uppers that frequently. When I say professional, I'm saying you know, powerlifters or similar. Who, who have a, a sport that is well suited to short-term arousal level uh, to complete a lift, I would, I would suggest that their use would be uh, a little bit more sparse than every single training session. So how's that, Mike? We covered that? Excellent. appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Yes, there's some real concerns there, as I said, both from the caffeine perspective as well as the sugar that comes with the perspective. Um, you know, if you... We have a better alternative. We have a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy drink if people want it uh, with with far reduced sugars and 
a, a more natural source of caffeine uh, if people wanted to get on a better way. In fact, I would be very concerned. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any of my clients and the athletes I work with um, opening up one of those other brands, shall we say, without getting specific. Okay, so we've done with some great questions. Um, trust it was valuable for everybody. I'm just rolling up now to see if we get a hand up or not. Oh, we got a hand up from Greg. Greg had something to add. Um, yeah, I just have a question on top of uh, the topic we just talked about. Excellent. Let's go for number four. Um, if if an athlete was going to use a let's say a pre workout supplement in their competition. How far in advance would you like them to basically introduce it so it wouldn't be something new on the day of the competition, or would you do it that way? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two parts to that. If it's if it's restricted competition use only, or is it is it something you'd use on a regular training basis? If it's competition use only, you would have to have preferably two competition lead-up trials. Uh, if you only had one and it didn't go right, you would be a bit panicky. So in the ideal world, you'd have a minimum of two trial competition exposures to it, which means it's probably going to happen a lot more months out than it would if it was something you were using in the training. If it was something you were using in training, you could be doing it on a daily basis uh, you know, in a closer time frame. But anything less than two, two trials doesn't leave you enough time to refine. So I don't like to introduce anything new in, a, in a, an important competition. And keep in mind that even when you do have, say, two or more previous trials with something, the body is different every day and the variables are different every day. And we can never guarantee that doing the same things we did last time will get the same results simply because the body is different every day. So that's the added variable that we need to be conscious of. How's that, Greg? I have something to add to that. Go ahead, John. So when you're introducing something like that too, I mean, just like Ian said, everybody's different. So I like to test out different times, especially, you know, pre-training to see when it kicks in. So you could do that by every 15 minutes and experiment the different days if you want. Um, The other thing is, is to make sure that there's no diminishing returns. Um, what I found works is getting off of it twice as long as you've been off on it. Does that make sense? So if you did it for, let's say, four weeks, you get off of it for eight weeks. Just so when you reintroduce it, you know, it can work again and there's no diminishing returns. Yeah, it's some powerful points, especially that last one, and that replies to the use of creatine, a point that people tend to miss. Uh, you become desensitized to anything and typically the best results in creatine in the first two cycles. And one of the reasons for that is because the time period between the creatine cycles is too short and therefore they don't get that same kick, that same impact. Great stuff. Well, appreciate coaches. Just run my eyes up and down, not seeing any more hands up. So we have handled some great questions. I appreciate everyone's input and look forward to the value that we add by sharing those questions out in the marketplace. Thanks, coaches. We'll talk shortly.